Father, thank you for the opportunity to come before your word again, to be formed by your word and to be shaped by your word. And I pray that that's exactly what would happen, uh, is that your Holy Spirit would minister to us according to each one of our needs. And the beauty of this thing is that uh, your word is relevant to all, and your spirit knows every single heart and mind in ways that no one else does. And so, Father, we ask that you would put away all distractions from our hearts and our minds and that your spirit would minister to each one according to our need. And we thank you for that promise in Philippians. And my God will meet all your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. So guide us now as we study your word. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let me invite you to take your Bibles, if you will, and turn to Ezekiel chapter 18. Ezekiel chapter 18, it's page 776 in your pew Bible. Page 776. Um, You see the sermon title there, Free to Repent. Free to Repent. And then the, the subtitle, Free from Your Heritage. Free from your heritage and free from your past in order to repent and believe. Many people feel chained to their past or chained to the ways of their parents. They feel helpless as if they can't help the way that they are, or as if they are paying for their parents' mistakes. Someone might say, well, Dad was an alcoholic, so I'm doomed to be an alcoholic, or something similar. Or people feel hopeless and helpless because of their own sinful past. And, the, and the chapter, this chapter in Ezekiel is here to help uh, you confront that kind of thinking. Let me give you the context of Ezekiel chapter 18 before we get into the chapter. God's people, the chosen people, the Israelites, are currently in exile. They're in exile. God had warned them and warned them for generations that if they continued in their sinful ways, he would send them away from the promised land into exile. And in the book of Ezekiel, that's exactly where they're at. The exile happened in waves. Uh, The Babylonians first swept through Israel in 605 B.C. and took many prisoners and exiled them. And among that first wave of prisoners were Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Then about eight years later, a second wave of uh, Babylon came through and took more prisoners. And included in those exiles were Ezekiel, the author we're looking at today, Ezekiel the prophet, and his wife. Uh, Ezekiel and many of the exiles in chapter 18 now live near the Kibar, what is called the Kibar Canal. Geographically speaking, they are in Iraq. They are in modern-day Iraq. In chapter 18 here that we're going to look at, what the Lord does is he confronts the people through Ezekiel. He confronts them about a saying or a proverb that is really popular among them at that time. So let's look at verses 1 through 4, and the proverb that the Lord confronts is in verse 2. Beginning with verse 1. The word of the Lord came to me, that is Ezekiel, the word of the Lord came to me, what do you mean by using this proverb concerning the land of Israel? The fathers eat sour grapes, and the children's teeth are set on edge. As I live... This is the declaration of the Lord God. You will no longer use this proverb in Israel. Look, every life belongs to me. The life of the father is like the life of the son. Both belong to me. The person who sins 
is the one who will die. So, we'll stop the reading there. There's a proverb that's going around, and it's not from the Lord. A saying that suggests that children pay for the father's sins. That children pay for the father's sins. The proverb is, the fathers eat sour grapes, and it's not the father's teeth that are set on edge, but rather the, the children's teeth are set on edge. And of course, the Israelites are in exile at this time, and they're in exile because of the sins of their fathers and their ancestors. At least that is their belief. But the Lord rejects this proverb. He rejects this saying. He addresses it through his prophet Ezekiel. In fact, this proverb is also found in the book of Jeremiah. He also addresses this proverb in the book of Jeremiah too, but we're not going to look at that passage. We're just in Ezekiel. How does he address it? Well, first of all, he forbids its use. He forbids its use in verse 3. As long as I live, you will no longer use this proverb, Israel. Why? Because it's not true. Because it's not true. And he gives the counter-truth in verse 4. He gives the counter-truth in verse 4. Every life belongs to me. The life of the Father is like the life of the Son. Both belong to me. The person who sins is the one who will die. You see, there's this, there's this popular idea spouted and accepted by many Israelites that one is doomed to pay for the sins of their fathers or their parents. And the Lord comes against this idea and declares it to be false. It's a piece of stinking thinking. I think that's a phrase I got from David. <laughs> David Alry, not David in the Psalms, just to clarify. Um, it's a piece of stinking thinking. And what he does then in the rest of the chapter is to demonstrate the truth to demonstrate the truth through examples and explanations. Now, this chapter not only confronts the stinking thinking of that day, it also addresses several popular but false ideas and notions that are in our culture today, as we're going to see. So to get our bearings, um, before we dive into the chapter, I want, to, I want to highlight three verses in the chapter first. Uh, we've already seen one, and that's verse 4. Verse 4 is a key verse. Um, Every life belongs to me. The Lord says this verse talks about your direct accountability to God. You each one of you is directly accountable to God, not through your parents or anyone else. But each of you belongs to the Lord. Is known by the Lord is loved by the Lord is accountable directly to the Lord. Well, how does the Lord judge us? How does the Lord judge each of us? What's his principle of judgment? Verse 30 is where he declares his principle of judgment. Therefore, house of Israel, I will judge each one of you according to his ways. According to his ways. The principle of judgment is one's actions, one's behavior, one's conduct. But what is the Lord's attitude in all this? What is the Lord's attitude in all this? That's found. Um, there's a verse here that talks about the Lord's desire, and it's in verse 23. Verse 23, do I take any pleasure in the death of the wicked? This is the declaration of the Lord God. Instead, don't I take pleasure when he turns from his ways and lives? When he turns from his ways and lives. You see, the Lord is just. The Lord is just. Indeed, as the perfect God, it's impossible for him to be unjust. He is sinless. He is holy. To be unjust is to be wicked. And the Lord is not wicked. There is no wickedness in him. Psalm 92. And if there is no wickedness in him, there is no injustice in him. He is not unjust. He is holy and sinless, which means he is thoroughly righteous and perfect. But that doesn't mean that his heart isn't with you. Verse 23 is very clear that he is rooting for your success. 
The Lord who is just is rooting for your success. He wants your salvation. Look at the cross. All right? If the Lord were, the Lord is just, and he could have just sat back and let us go our merry ways to hell, be condemned to hell for our sins as we deserve. But he gave us the cross. He gave us the cross. He gave us his son. Why? Because he's rooting for us. He wants our salvation. He's giving us a second chance, if you will, through Jesus Christ. The Lord is rooting for your success. He takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Do you know that the Bible, the, the Bible says that hell wasn't even created for human beings? Human beings end up in hell, but it wasn't created for human beings. According to Matthew chapter 5, it was created for whom? Anybody know? The, the devil and his angels, right. It wasn't even created for human beings. The Lord wants everyone to repent, come to a knowledge of salvation. So the Lord is rooting for you. So these are some of our, our guiding, our guiding uh, principles here. To be clear, we're talking about ultimate matters here. We're talking about eternal matters. Whether your final dwelling place is heaven or hell, and the Lord does not wish you to go to hell. That is not his wish or desire. He takes no pleasure in that. He wants you to have eternal life. Now, we're going to work through this chapter and see how this passage confronts some stinking thinking that is common today. In verses 5 through 18, he gives a long illustration. The Lord gives a long illustration involving three generations, three men, uh, a man, his son, and his grandson. So let's look at the first man, beginning in verse 5. Now, suppose a man is righteous and does what is just and right. He does not eat at the mountain shrines or raise his eyes to the idols of the house of Israel. He does not defile his neighbor's wife or come near a woman during her menstrual impurity. He doesn't oppress anyone but returns his collateral to the debtor. He does not commit robbery but gives his bread to the hungry and covers the naked with clothing. He doesn't lend at interest or for profit but keeps his hand from wrongdoing and carries out true justice between men. He follows my statutes and keeps, his or- and keeps my ordinances, acting faithfully. Such a person, person is righteous. He will certainly live. This is the declaration of the Lord God. So that's, that's, the, that's the first man. He, he's a righteous man, and what's the result? He will certainly live. He's a righteous man as seen in all of his behavior um, towards his family, towards others, towards the impoverished, in all his conduct, and towards the word of God. That's the first man. Verse 10 then talks about that man's son, who is, uh, whoa, I'm way behind in my slides here. That's okay. Uh, the verse uh, verse uh, 10 talks about uh, that man's son, who is nothing like his dad. He's nothing like his dad, verse 10. Now suppose the man has a violent son who sheds blood and does any of these things, though the father has done none of them. Indeed, when the son eats at the mountain shrines and defiles his neighbor's wife, and when he oppresses the poor and needy, commits robbery and does not return collateral, and when he raises his eyes to the idols, commits detestable acts and lends at interest or for profit, will he live? He will not live. Since he has committed all these detestable acts, he will certainly die. His blood will be on him. So this man is like the total opposite of his dad, right? He did everything his father refused to do because his father was a man of faith. And um, he refuses to do any of the things that his father did, which was good. There's not only a distinction or a difference in behavior, but there's also a difference in result, right? He will certainly, he will certainly die. Now, just a side note here. Are we saved by works? No, we're saved by grace. We're saved by grace. 
And yet what we, what, what we see here looks like a works salvation, right? The righteous man did all these things and he will live. And the, uh, the violent, his violent son did all these things and he will certainly die. Um, but there's only one way to be saved according to the scriptures. Only one way to go to heaven. And that is by trusting in Jesus Christ. But you need to understand, you understand the connection between faith and works, right? Um, faith in Christ is what is needed. In the Bible, especially, for instance, in the book of James, if you have saving faith in Jesus Christ, it's going to demonstrate itself in the way you live your life. And if you don't have faith in Christ, it's going to demonstrate itself in one way or another in disobedience to God. Now, the focus in this chapter is primarily on the, on the works, but we understand from the context of Scripture that what we're talking about in the first generation is a man of faith whose faith is demonstrated in his works. And in the second generation is a man of unbelief whose unbelief is also demonstrated in his works. So I just wanted to clarify that. So, for instance, verse 30, I will judge each one of you according to your ways. That's true. We're saved by grace, we're judged by works. But the works that we're judged by are either works of faith or works of unbelief. And according to 1 John 3, 9, Pastor Ryan preached on this back in February, a man who is following the Lord, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning. The Lord is transforming his true children into such a way that they are becoming increasingly like the Son of God. Not perfect yet, but we're on the road. We're on the road to that. Now let's look at the third generation, the third man, verses 14 to 18. Now suppose this wicked man has a son who sees all the sins his father has committed, and though he sees them, he does not do likewise. He does not eat at the mountain shrines or raise his eyes to the idols of the house of Israel. He does not defile his neighbor's wife. He doesn't oppress anyone, hold collateral, or commit robbery. He gives his bread to the hungry and covers the naked with clothing. He keeps his hand from harming the poor, not taking interest or profit on a loan. He practices my ordinances and follows my statutes. Such a person will not die for his father's iniquity. He will certainly live. So you understand the large illustration here, okay? Man, righteous, he will live. His son, violent, unrighteous, ungodly, he will die. Third son, or the grandson, not like his father, he's righteous, does all the things that righteousness requires. He is a man of faith. He will, he will live. Was the third man punished for his father's sin? He wasn't. He wasn't. And that's the point of the illustration. This illustration is a clear refutation of the proverb that Israel is quoting, which indicates that children are doomed to be punished for their parents' sin. Now, Okay, so we've looked at the passage. Let's draw out some truths from this. Let's draw out some truths for our own day. Truth number one is this. You are not guilty for your parents' sins. You are not guilty for your parents' sins. God doesn't hold you responsible for your parents' sins. Even way back in the first five books of the Bible, in the law of Moses, the Lord said, fathers are not to be put to death for their children or children for their fathers. Each person will be put to death for his own sin. Each person will be put to death for his own sin. Here's what you need to hear. You are not guilty for your parents' sins. Your parents may have been adulterers. They may have slept around a lot. They may have been drunkards. They may have committed murder. They may have been abusive. They may have been liars and thieves. 
They may have been manipulative and lazy or whatever. God does not hold you responsible for those sins. That may not be true of a lot of cultures, and that may not be true of a lot of communities. They may hold you responsible for those sins, but it's not true with God. This truth also confronts the new brand of social justice that is garnering support in our country as well. This new brand of social justice is being fueled by critical race theory and critical social justice. The new brand of social justice divides, likes to divide society up into oppressors and victims. Um, just, and just superficially based on, uh, on physical or ethnic characteristics, not looking at all at the content of one's character. So that identity politics proclaims, that, proclaims whites to be oppressors and non-whites to be victims. It proclaims men are oppressors simply because they're men and women are victims. It proclaims that heterosexuals are oppressors and non-heterosexuals are victims. It proclaims that able-bodied people are oppressors and handicapped people are victims. And one of the latest divisions is that Christians are privileged and therefore they are oppressors and non-Christians are victims. If you are white or heterosexual, you are automatically, irregardless, irregardless of your character, you are automatically considered an oppressor or if you are able-bodied or Christian or what have you. And that's simply anti-biblical. It goes, flies in the face of Ezekiel chapter 18. It's false. God is the judge. He says no to this kind of lumping everyone together kind of thinking. Has racism been a grievous sin in our country? Absolutely. It's absolutely been a grievous sin in our country. Does that automatically make you a racist if you are white? It does not. It does not make you a racist. That's not the way God operates. It's possible for ethnic minorities to be racist as well. It's possible for, or for ethnic minorities not to be racist. In the same way, it is true for whites. Some whites are racist. Some are not. We are judged by God, by our heart, by our conduct. You are liable for your own sins. You are not guilty for your parents' sins. Further, and an even more important truth, truth number two, you are not doomed to repeat your parents' sins. You are not doomed to repeat your parents' sins. You are not bound by them. Remember that three-generation illustration? The middleman is wicked, but his son is not. His son is not. Verse 14. Now suppose he has a son who sees all the sins his father committed. He observes all the sins that his father committed, and though he sees them, he does not do likewise. So what do we have here? We have a young man who has grown up in his father's house and has observed the way his father mistreats everyone, is violent, is a sinful man, always living for himself. We have a young man who sees this. That's the daily example that's set before him. He sees it and he rejects it. He rejects it and says, I'm not going to live that way. I'm not going to live by, uh, by the way uh, my dad lived. That is freedom right there. That's a recognition that you are not bound by the sins of your father. You are not bound to repeat them. You know, we have sayings in our, in our culture, you know, the apple doesn't far, fall far from the tree, you know, a chip off the old block. And there's some, there's some truth in those sayings, depending on what you're talking about. But in terms of your choices before God, you are free. You are free by the grace of God in order to choose to follow Jesus Christ. God is showing tremendous freedom here. 
The third man in this chapter saw his father constantly mistreat others and defy God and continually do despicable things. And yet he rejected that. He chose to follow God's law. When I was the youth director here at the church, we had several youth who made this decision, who made this decision. Their parents were not churchgoers or not Christ followers, and yet these youth each chose to follow the Lord on their own. They chose to follow the Lord. And if you're in a similar situation, don't think that you are doomed to be a sinner or a compromised Christian at best, because you're not. Well, how can you avoid that? By surrendering, by surrendering yourself to Jesus Christ. By completely surrendering yourself to Jesus Christ. By giving control of your life over to him and beginning to follow his ways. Some of the godliest men and women throughout history have come from horrible homes. And maybe, the person, maybe you're thinking of a person right now that isn't you. Maybe you're praying for or witnessing to others who have grown up in godless homes. Don't lose heart. Don't lose heart because they can, they can, by the grace of God, come out of that unbelief. Now, I want to talk about this illustration of the three generations from a different angle, a more sobering angle. And this is truth number three. Just because your parents are saved doesn't mean you are. Just because your parents are saved doesn't mean you are. The first man was a righteous man, and he will certainly live. But the second man did not live like his dad, and he will certainly die. Your dad may be godly, and your mother may be a saint. But if you are not walking with the Lord in the light of his word, you will not be in heaven with them. Your parents and your grandparents on both sides and all eight of your great-grandparents may all have their names written in the Lamb's Book of Life, but that doesn't mean that your name is there. You may have grown up in a Christian home, but the question is, is the home that you have established, is that a Christian home? God says in verse 4, every life belongs to me. In other words, directly to me. And the person who sins is the one who will die. At the final judgment, that's an individual affair. Each one stands before the judge of all the earth. Your relatives or your friends or your pastors or your church can't get you into heaven. The Lord's not looking at all your connections and associations except for one, your relationship with Jesus Christ. That's what he's looking at. That's what he's evaluating by. And now here's a corollary truth too. truth number four. Children of believers can choose to be unbelievers. Children of Christians can choose to be not Christians. Your Christian parents can't guarantee your salvation, and you can't guarantee your kids' salvation. Despite the first man's godliness, and that first man was a godly man, his son chose the complete opposite lifestyle. Remember, the prodigal son left his father, and he left his father's godliness and piety as well. It's good news in that story. He came back, but... This highlights, this highlights the importance of parents doing all they can to give every advantage to their children to walk with the Lord and training them up in the fear and admonition of the Lord. Because ultimately, it's, their kids, it's the kid's decision. Well, let's move on in the scripture. A new illustration is begun in verse 21. So we have a new illustration that the Lord gives in verse 21. Now, if the wicked person turns from all the sins he has committed, keeps all my statutes and does what is just and right, He will certainly live. He will not die. None of the transgressions he has committed will be held against him. He will live because of the righteousness he has practiced. Do I take any pleasure in the death of the wicked? This is the declaration of the Lord God. Instead, don't I take pleasure when he turns from his ways and live? 
So in the first illustration, there is a change from generation to generation. In this new illustration, there's a change within one person, within an individual. It's about a wicked person who repents. He was wicked and he sinned much, but then he turned away from those sins and he began to follow the Lord. He does what is just and right. Because he does so, he will certainly live. He will not die. In New Testament terminology, this is a person who has repented of their sins and put his faith in Christ and as a consequence has eternal salvation. Truth number five. That's not it. There it is. Repentance is possible. Repentance is possible. Repentance is possible regardless of what you have done. We have a wicked person. He sinned continually and then he repents. He forsakes the old ways and follows God and obeys God. And how does God look at that? Verse 23, God is well pleased. God is delighted. He's excited. He's happy. He's joyful. And this is a guy who sinned, who was wicked, who was greatly wicked. And yet the Lord is excited. Why? Because he's turned from that past. And now he is walking with the Lord. You see, a person comes to him and says, I want to live for you. And the Lord doesn't look at the past. Sin's forgotten, put away. The Lord isn't saying, oh, no, no, I don't care how much good you do. I'm holding this over you. I'm holding your past over you. There's no way you can make up for what you've done in the past. It's not what he says. It's not what he says. First Timothy 1.15, this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full, of full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. To save who? Sinners. To save sinners. To save good people? To save righteous people? No, to save sinners. Luke 5. But the Pharisees and their scribes were complaining to his disciples, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Those guys are rotten. Why do you associate with those guys? And Jesus said to them, The healthy don't need a doctor. The sick do. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. I've come to call sinners to repentance. Now, who does Jesus mean by sinners? Who's he talking about? Is he talking about a certain class of sinners? Those who do the the lesser sins, if there are lesser sins? Or is he also talking about the the worst of society? Well, uh, if you can can categorize and tell me that it's just a small group of sinners, please explain that to me, not right now, but later. But I think he's actually talking about all who have sinned no matter how bad they have sinned. I, co- I told you earlier that some of the godliest men and women throughout history have come from horrible homes. It's also true that some of the godliest men and women throughout history have been some of the most wicked of sinners before they repented and believed in the Lord Jesus. The Apostle Paul would classify himself that way. He did classify himself that way. He called himself the chief of sinners. The chief of sinners. The grace and mercy and forgiveness available through the cross of Jesus has been preached all over the world for 2,000 years, and it's a staple of gospel preaching. And yet there are still people who think that God can't possibly save them, that God can't possibly deal with their particular case because they've sinned too much. It's like Jesus came to save almost everybody, but not them. they've, They've sinned too bad. There's no way that God would take them. Well, On the authority of the word of God, I am telling all of you who can hear my voice that if you turn from your sins, no matter what they are, and trust in the Lord Jesus, you can be forgiven of all your sins and be saved from eternal suffering for your sins.
Let's move on. Verse 24. Verse 24, we have the opposite case. We have a righteous man who gives up his faith, who checks his faith. Verse 24. But when a righteous person turns from his righteousness and practices iniquity, committing the same detestable acts that the wicked do, will he live? None of the righteous acts he did will be remembered. He will die because of the treachery he has engaged in and the sin he has committed. This guy turns from holy living to sin, from good works to works that are detestable to God. And what's the consequence? He will not live. All his past good, forgotten. Truth number six is not, there it is, deconversion is possible. Deconversion or apostasy is possible. No one likes to say that. I said it. We, uh, and we have seen some of this in recent days. Famous professed believers have felt the need to take to social media to announce that they no longer believe. The lesson here is to guard your heart. It's to guard your heart. Keep walking with the Lord. Keep praising him, talking with him, gathering with his believers, studying the world, the world, studying the word and guarding your heart, nurturing that relationship with Jesus Christ on a regular basis. Colossians chapter 2 Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, walk in him. Daily basis, continuously, walk in him. As you received him, don't just look, you know, don't just look back on the day you received him. You, that relationship should be fresh. It should be ongoingly fresh. Walk in him, uh, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith. Are you walking in Christ? Do you commune with him daily? Do you have conversation? Are you talking to him daily? Are you, re- are you listening to him daily through his words? Are you gathering with his people on a regular basis? Well, let me summarize in a, and a, a, yeah, summarize where we've been here. Verses 1 through 20 gave that illustration about the three generations. And, you know, the broad lesson there is your parents do not determine your eternal destiny. That is up to you. And then in verses 21 and following, you can change your eternal destiny. You can change it. So repent. Repent and put your faith in Christ. Many of you have repented. And I'm telling you that repentance is an ongoing kind of thing. You know, the good thing about the Lord is when you came to faith in Christ, he didn't show you all your sins all at once. (laughs) You know, he, he helped you change, but um, gradually he points out other things in your life. As you walk with the Lord, as you put sin away, he'll begin to point out other things. Oh, you need to take care of this attitude. You need to take care of the way you treat your kid this way. You need to treat, you know, deal with your tongue in this way type of thing, or the way you talk to your husband or your wife. The Lord continues to, to show us those things. And so life is, a, life is ongoing repentance. God has given you that ability through his grace given to you through his son, Jesus Christ. I like the way Daniel Block puts it. He says, regardless of how wicked your ancestors have been or how wickedly you yourself have behaved, you may avoid the sentence of death. In other words, by the great, because of the grace of Jesus Christ given to you, you can choose to follow Christ. You can choose to believe and repent. Verses 30 to 32, bring it all home. The Lord says, therefore, house of Israel, I will judge each one of you according to his ways. 
This is the declaration of the Lord God. Repent and turn from all your transgressions so that they will not be a stumbling block that causes your punishment. Throw off all the transgressions you have committed and get yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. Why should you die? For I take no pleasure in anyone's death. This is the declaration of the Lord God. So repent and live. So repent and live. Turn from your sin and turn to the Lord and keep doing that. Keep walking away from sin. Keep walking towards the Lord. And as the Lord reveals sin to you, cast it off. Don't let your love for the Lord grow cold. Will you bow your heads in prayer? Father, thank you for the freedom to repent. Thank you for the grace that you have given to us to, to, to each individual in order to trust and obey, in order to repent of sin, in order to walk in the way of holiness, in order to um, be free from the power of sin, as Romans 6 uh, talks about. And my prayer is, Lord, that you would help everyone in this room to do that. I, I know that many have put their faith in Jesus Christ. But I don't know that all have put their faith in Christ. I don't know that all are walking in repentance. I pray, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would strive with each one of us to make sure that all of us are trusting in the Lord and walking in repentance. And so in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.